It is a joy to be with you all this morning. All right, how well can people see that? Okay, it's all right. I, ha- I do have some copies printed out on the back table. But I did want to try having slides today. Okay. When we come to preach, there's a thesis to every sermon. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. For this we toil, struggling with all the energy that God works within us. That's what we should hope every sermon that we are proclaiming Jesus and we might be presented mature in him. Now we have a hope for this particular sermon series where we've been going through 1 Corinthians to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's the title of our series, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to what? Mature manhood, the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So we want everyone to be mature in Christ, but there can be a number of ways to do that. And one way that we want to focus on in this season where we've been coming out of COVID, we've been coming out of sabbatical, we want to know how are we going to be reinvigorated? How are we going to be encouraged to do what God might be putting for us to do? It's to look that he equips the saints for the work of ministry. God equips the saints for the work of ministry. So today, we're going to Oh, it's a good try. Let's see. Does it not work? Oh, so sad. I don't know why it's not working. Did this work for you, Randy? That's what we're supposed to be seeing. But Rachel did it for me, so I don't know. Okay, well... Equipping the saints to bear with one another. That's the uh, sermon title that we have for today out of 1 Corinthians 6, to equip the saints to bear with one another. It takes work (laughs) to be built up in the body of Christ, and so we need to bear with one another. And so our text is going to be 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 8. And it's not going to work. Okay, so next slide. You can turn there in your scriptures, 1 Corinthians 6. 1 through 8. And I'll read this for us. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Let 
why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? That is a question, a rather indignant question that the apostle is bringing. And this is the question that we're going to be answering today in the sermon because he means it more as a statement. We should rather suffer wrong than afflict it. We should rather be defrauded than seek vengeance ourselves. And so we actually want to look at the situation that's going on here, the problems that were going on, and how God actually calls us to answer this question that we should rather suffer wrong with Jesus. Okay? So we're going to be answering that question. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? The situation. Let's look at just basically what's going on here. Okay? Sorry, Rachel, I'm putting you on the spot here. All right, one of you has a grievance against another. Verse one, you dispute with one another. You're having lawsuits with one another. Trivial cases, matters pertaining to this life, were wronging and defrauding. Okay, so people have beef with one another, right? Can you imagine that? Okay, we might have that. We might have situations where we have been brought to court or are bringing, bringing, bringing someone else to court. Or it might be the court of public opinion these days, right? You're airing stuff on Facebook or wherever it is that you go, or you're talking smack about people, okay? There could be a number of things I want to clarify, the types of things that might be pertaining to this life is not so much like heaven is better than earth, but like it means day-to-day -day affairs, right? You're quarreling over day-to-day -day things, all right? So there are kind of a number of things that could go into this on the next slide. All right, for example, when two women went before Solomon, they bring a dead child. And whose child is this? One of them says, the dead child is yours and the living one is mine. Then the other one spoke and said, no. Right? Then the king goes and says, one says that the one is alive and the other one is dead. This one says the son that is dead is mine and the one that is living is yours. All right? you, have a, you, you have two people who have two different situations, two different views on the same, the same issue. Right? Who's going to adjudicate between the two of them? Have you been in this? I've heard situations. They did this. No, they did this. Well, who am I to believe? <laughs> Issues come about when people have different stories about the same situation. And it might be someone's fault, or it might be something that just happens. When we have a body of people, and things are going to happen to us, there are going to be times where we have different interpretations of the same event or we're trying to get ahead of one another and someone's going to have to figure out who's telling the truth, okay? So that's one situation. There are people who are coming together and they have different stories. Next slide, right? Another possible situation of what's going on here. Has God not chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith? And yet are the rich the ones who oppress you and drag you into court? Okay, what that means is Someone owes someone money. We often owe people money. In this time especially, someone who has the means could bring you into court and say, you're not paying. You owe me something and you need to give it to me. Right? That causes bickering. When someone owes someone something, there could be an altercation. So, right? That could be one of the situations here, is that someone owes someone money and it's causing a big dispute about who actually gets to get it and what we should do about it. And another option, next slide, could just be that people are running their mouths, right? 
No human being can tame the tongue. We talked about this at Camp Willow Run, right? No human being can tame the tongue. It's filled with malice and unrighteousness, gossiping, slandering. All right, when we get angry, we might let our tongues go sometimes and say things about people that may or may not be true. All right? And you go check it. Thank you. All right? And so when we do that, if someone talks bad about you, how are you going to feel about it? You all are fine about it, I guess. You're not going to feel great about it, right? You're going to then be upset, and you're going to be like, it starts to cause all sorts of rumblings and grumblings, okay, in the body. So that's what we might have here, right? This is not necessarily things that we would call entering into criminal court. These are things that we might call civil court matters, right? Property, money, owning, being owed, someone says something about this, altercations over family, Right? Family, property, our tongues, these sorts of matters that can cause huge disputes within a body. You all know this. You're going into Thanksgiving. Okay? Just think of your own family, let alone in communities or inside the church. Okay? Next slide. All right. So, what's the problem? Oh, this slide is just saying, like, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Right? Bearing with one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as Christ has forgiven you. That's what God calls us to. It recognizes, thank you, Mike. It recognizes that we're actually going to have disputes. But it also says that we are to love one another. We're to love one another and bear with one another forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven us. That's what we're called to. So the way that they're handling the disputes is a problem. All right, so let's look at the problem. All right, the first problem is that they're bringing all their stuff before people who do not have standing to judge it. They're bringing their stuff before people who don't have standing in the matter. Right? I say this to your shame. Does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous, before unbelievers, before those who do not have standing in the church? Sometimes we go to people to make us feel good or to give us what we want who don't actually have a stake in the matter, right? Okay? We are called to bear witness in the world, right? Just as Jesus came into the world, so he sends us into the world. Our calling as a body is to bear witness to who Jesus Christ is. That's why he sent us here. One of the ways that we're going to bear witness is by looking differently. We look differently on how we bear with one another, right? Christ suffered, and so we ourselves are to suffer. And the time has passed for us to do what the world does, not only in debauchery, but in maligning one another. And he says, Peter says this, with respect to this, the world will be surprised when we don't join in with them in the same flood of debauchery. We're not supposed to be talking bad about one another, suing one another, fighting with one another over property and money. And he says that the world will actually malign us for not participating with them in the same way. So the issue is, what happens if we do do the same things as the world? 
What if we look the same as the world and how we fight with one another? Knowing this, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, saying, where is the promise? Things have continued the same way that they have ever since the beginning. If the world looks at the church and does not see anything different than the world, we give people reason to scoff at God. Because God made a promise of a people who look differently, who handle disputes differently. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or sits in the seat of scoffers. Friends, we do not want to invite scoffing because we bring all of our dirty laundry and we bring all of our disputes before the world for them to judge. This is how the world is supposed to view us. Sharing with one another, teaching what the apostles have said, breaking bread with one another, fellowshipping with one another, having all things in common and having favor with all people and the Lord would add to our number. See, the witness that the church has there in Acts is that people are seeing them be a new community brought from every tribe and tongue and nation and they're loving one another even in the midst of having different abilities and different languages and different property and all these sorts of things. And when we do that, right, even the chief priests who dragged Peter and John before them, right, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Is that the hope that we have for people to see us and how we handle one another? Well, they recognize the, by the way that they act that they had been with Jesus. And then they have nothing to say and they cannot deny that they are loving one another the way that Jesus loved them. That's the testimony. That's the bearing witness that we're supposed to have. The world cannot deny that we have been with Jesus. So we're called. So the problem is, if we're bringing all those things and fighting before courts internally, we're not bearing witness and we're causing scoffing. Now here's a, here's a bit of a tangent that's important. So what do we do with human authorities? Right? We do have courts. Right? And the scriptures have something to say about this. So let me get through this just because I think this is important to address. Right? We are to be subject to human authorities, right? God has ordained all authority, and he says he puts it in, in place to reward those who do good and to punish those who do evil. We would not be afraid of the courts, he said, if we do good. And so we are to be subject to them because God does not give the sword in vain to the state. It is there to execute righteousness and justice. That is why God has appointed it, right? And even the apostles talk to the church, right? Don't let you suffer to be a murderer or a thief or a wrongdoer or a meddler, right? There's no credit for us if we suffer punishment for wrongdoing. In fact, what they're saying is that you will need to suffer punishment from those who bear the sword if you do wrong, when Paul, earlier, just before this letter, talks about the man who has taken his father's wife and is, per is perpetuating sexual immorality in the church, he says, hand him over to Satan. What's important here is that I think we're seeing in the church right now a lot of scandal 
around the church keeping things hush-hush for its own reputation's sake. It has not handled allegations of abuse and wrongdoing in a way that it should because it has not wanted the courts and the police and the state to be involved and it has not wanted its reputation to be brought before the world. And so instead of dealing with things honestly, it has kept things to itself and has used biblical justifications to, for self-preservation. And that is wickedness. If there is wrongdoing in the church, the church is supposed to discover it and discern it, but it is also supposed to hand those things over to those who do not bear the sword in vain. There is no justice in keeping things hush-hush or keeping a face, okay? That is not what we're talking about. What we are talking about is though we are to be subject, right, we are supposed to use our freedom not to perpetuate evil in the first place, but to use our freedom for doing good and recognize that even if the state does not bear the sword in vain and we are supposed to hand wrongdoers over to the courts, we recognize that the world does not judge the same way that God does. Our principle of forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration is not necessarily going to be what the world understands its purpose to be when it bears a sword. Jesus stood before Pilate. Pilate had no authority over him other than what God had given him. Pilate recognized, he's like, I'm not a Jew. I don't have anything to say in this matter, but I guess I'll execute you anyway. What is truth, Pilate asks. We should have a similar posture to recognizing that the courts and the state of the world are not going to always accord with what God has commanded. And yet they still do not bear the sword in vain. So we should not trust them to be telling us exactly how we should go about forgiving or reconciling or doing our business. We don't need to be unequally yoked and let them be the ones discerning for us but we do need to subject ourselves to what the law says and what is good and what's right. We need to be able to discern for ourselves. And this goes into the second problem, right? They're not actually discerning for themselves, right? I say this to your shame, right? Is there no one competent among you to judge the cases? Is there no one that can handle these things? Is there no one among you that can discern? All right, he's... Paul's throwing a little bit of shade here because if you remember as the letter that we've gone through, the whole first four chapters is Paul talking about disputing wisdom, right? I did not come to you with one with elegant wisdom, he says. Because the Corinthians were all about, no, I'm, we're very wise. We have the rhetorical abilities, right? Where is the scribe? Where is the wise of this age? See, he's kind of getting a point. Here you are boasting about, I follow this teacher, I follow that teacher, I'm really wise to do this, and yet you can't discern your own cases? You're going to bring this before the court of public opinion or the court of Rome to make your decisions? So he's kind of making a jab at them, okay? Here's how we're actually supposed to use our wisdom and the ability God's given to us, to speak the truth in love to one another and to restore those who are caught in sin. That means we need to be able to discern what the will of God is 
And we need to be able to speak the truth. We need to know the truth if we're to speak the truth in love, right? We need to be in relationship with one another if we're to be able to do it in love. And so the call of the saints is to be able to discern things according to the will of God. And more than that, he gives us a method to do that. Matthew 18, which is probably pretty well known, right? If your brother has something against you, go and tell him. And if he listens, meaning that he listens and he repents, then you've gained your brother. If he doesn't, bring someone else along so that you can establish it with some witnesses. And if he listens and repents, then you've regained your brother. And if he doesn't, then all you with the witnesses can come before the church with your allegations to discern. And if he still doesn't, and if the court finds him guilty, this is why we have church courts, right? Then let him be to you a Gentile and a tax collector. So God has given us a process of how to actually deal with accusations and with wrongdoing. It's not, we don't have to make this up on our own. We don't have to make it up on our own wisdom. But we are called to actually follow this, right? So this is another a bit of a tangent that I hear quite a bit. It's like, you probably heard like, you can't judge me. Mm-hmm, I see some head shaking, right? You can't judge me, right? right? What do we do with judging one another? We, read, we heard Elizabeth read this. Judge not lest you be judged. For the same judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. Who are you to judge one another? Take the log out of your own eye and the speck before you take the speck out of your brother's. Okay, here we are talking about the courts, the church should be able to handle discerning its own cases. But what do we do with the passage that's like, don't judge one another? Judge one another, but don't judge one another, right? Okay, I think some of the keys are getting into other places where the apostles talk about judgment, right? Do not quarrel over opinions. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands and falls. This is Paul talking about not judging before the time. Well, what he's talking about are matters of food, matters of time, matters of dress, matters of what he calls opinion, right? We're judging one another. Those Gentiles are like this. Those Gentiles are like that. I don't like this. I don't like how you eat. I don't like how you do this. I don't like the color of clothes that you wear, right? That's not appropriate. That's not appropriate. Okay, we're talking about matters of opinion. And we judge one another. Like, oh, they must not be a real question because they smoke or something. I don't know, right? We, we pass these sort of judgments. This is, I think, what they're talking about, right? It can't be... Listen, that statement cannot be that we do not pass judgment as a church on wrongdoing. Wrongdoing is wrongdoing, and we are supposed to exercise it. Paul just said earlier in this very chapter, right, or the next chapter, right, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who is guilty of these things. Purge the evil person from among you. That is harsh. Right? So when they're saying, do not judge one another lest you be judged, it's a call to examine yourself and think about what are the, what are the situations and the bases on which you're passing judgment in your mind? 
We're kind of talking about judging as in like a judgmental spirit. We're not talking about judging as in sitting before a case, right? This is not, well, she hurt me. No, I didn't hurt her. And to come to me like, well, Jesus said don't judge, so I can't do anything for you. That's wicked. If someone comes to you with a claim of injustice, you have to discern whether it has happened. That is a call of the church. Otherwise, we can't fulfill what it is to be pure. All right? For while we might sit in judgment, as the judges in the Old Testament were called, the judgment is God's. The judgment is God's. That's why we discern to have wise people sit in these places. Okay? So we have the problem that we're bringing before human courts things that we shouldn't, though we are supposed to be subject to them. We have a problem that we're not discerning our own cases, and we're called to be wise, and wise before God. And in some ways, the main problem is this. You're having beef in the first place. That's what Paul says, like, to have lawsuits at all is already a defeat for you. Why are you wronging one another in the first place? That's his, that's his main question. It's a defeat for the church. He calls it a defeat. The other things were a shame. This thing is a defeat, right? What causes quarrels among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? They're at war and you're losing when you go about taking it out on one another. What are passions? Passions are inordinate desires for things of this world, for food, for sex, for fame, for money, for prestige, for influence. And when we want these things and when other people get in our way or they feel that they have come upon us, we have a tendency to lash out. And that is a defeat, he says. Because that is not the way that we learned Christ. The way we learned Christ is to put off the old self with its corrupt desires and to put on the new self that is humble and love, looking to Christ who loved us, speaking the truth with our neighbor. I mean, he goes on. This is basically a big list of what it looks like. Be angry. Right? This is not about don't be angry at wrongdoing. Wrongdoing is wrongdoing. You should be angry about it. But do not let the sun go down on your anger and give the devil a foothold. So it's saying when we let our passions come at war with one another, you give the enemy a foothold into your life and into the church, and he's going to cause all sorts of mischief. And that can come from not speaking the truth also. It's not just about acting out inappropriately, but it's about not acting when it is appropriate. Right? But rather, we're supposed to be loving one another not stealing from one another, but laboring with our hands, providing for one another, right? Letting all this bitter talk come from us, right? Looking to Christ, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. And he sums it up here, be imitators of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. We are to be imitators of God to love one another and give ourselves up for one another. Give up our self and our self-centeredness and even our self-affliction for the sake of one another. Be patient, for love is patient, kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable. 
It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, endures all things, hopes all things, believes all things. That's what we're called to, a love that bears and endures all things. So why not suffer wrong? If love is long-suffering, if love is speaking the truth and suffering the wrong, taking it on ourselves rather than afflicting it back out in our passions, the apostles ask us, why not just rather be defrauded? If it's going to cause all this defeat and shame in the church for you to insist on your own way, why don't you just lay down your own way? Well, there's lots of reasons. Why not? <laughs> that's, that's why, right? If we're honest, like why not, why not just rather be defrauded? Are you kidding? That's, that would be my natural answer to that question. I can tell you why. My pride, which may be inordinate, but it's still like, what, am I going to lay myself down as a doormat? I have property, right? What am I going to do? Just give it all away? Progeny. I have people to provide for, right? Principle. Any self-respecting person isn't going to lay themselves down. That's why, right? Like, we have principles that we're going to say in. Practicality. Well, what does that even look like in a given situation? Praxis, case study. Well, what if this happens? What if this happens? What, what if it was Hitler? Right? Like, what if, you know, that, that's where people always go immediately to Hitler. Hitler's dead, okay? Like, all right, deal with a real example, okay? But what are we going to do in this situation, right? We have all sorts of justifications. And some of that is because of promises. The world has promised things to us that if you are hardworking and self-respecting, and you don't let people get ahead of you, but you don't try to do too bad by them either, but you get yours, then things are going to be okay. The issue is those are not always the promises that God has made to us. And so then we have to deal with a conflict of promises as well as our passions. And I just needed another PR thing, so I called this proofs. Okay, Here's an I, I want to I make an important point here. Some of you have been wounded. Some of you have been hurt and abused and afflicted by others. That is not okay. None of this is saying that wrongdoing is okay. The situation is primarily about more day-to-day -day matters. But you can see how this starts to bear out in even to even more grave situations. And I am sorry, especially if you have been hurt by people in the church. And so I call it proves because in the midst of all of this, I think it'd be a perfectly justifiable thing to come forward and be like, that's nice, preacher. So do you see these scars? And I think for this sermon, the most I can say right now is look to the arms of Jesus, who himself has scar-borne hands by people who spat on him, falsely accused him, beat him, 
crucified him. He extends his arms back to you and invites you to walk with him, to come and see. You have good reason to kind of push back against this. So I'd say just let Jesus walk with you in that. Okay? But back to this question, why not rather suffer wrong? We gave lots of our justifications. We have things that can go in our head and they might be spinning and they might be really valid. They might be invalid, right? But the point is that God is actually equipping us, right? This series about equipping the saints. God is equipping us to handle this, all right? God does not just leave us alone to deal with really harsh commandments, but he gives us things. He gives us his spirit. He gives us his word. He gives us things to equip us to be able to do what he asks us to do, right? So let's look at how God is actually calling us, not just, you should just answer this in the affirmative, you need to suffer wrong, but here's how, okay? Here's how God is equipping us to do that. And the first one is this, that he gives us a sense of the seriousness of the situation. Okay? Some of you have been in work environments in which you have things, people are going to come to you with all sorts of needs that you need to do, right? I at least find it helpful when someone gives me a deadline and talks about how serious the situation is, right? Okay? This is what we need to do. There's going to be a day of reckoning, so we need to get it done by this time, right? Because if someone just said, like, hey, I just need you to do this, well, Okay, I might just put it off, depending on where I rank it in my own. But if someone's like, um, we're all going to die if you don't hit the right wire in 30 seconds. I'm like, huh, okay, I'll put my lunch down, right? Like, you know, that's a silly example. But the point is, if you frame a situation in its seriousness and tell you a timeline, what it does is it puts you in and helps you know that like, this is something that I actually need to deal with. That is an equipment. God gives us that. The apostle tells the Athenians, the time of ignorance God has overlooked. He has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness and he has proved it to us by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. On that day he will render to each one according to his works. To those who through well-doing Seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. And to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey it unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Y'all, not that, I mean, I don't know if anyone aspires to be like the hell and brimstone preacher. Maybe they do. I don't know, I don't. But the point is, the judgment is a very real deadline. It is given to us in part to frame the seriousness of the situation. There will be a day, it is already appointed, in which God will judge the world in righteousness. All things will be revealed, all wrongdoing will be taken care of, and all well-doing will be rewarded. We are not dealing with a nebulous timeline. That is meant to impose upon us the seriousness of the situation, right? I'm going to skip this line, but maybe just talk like, because of that, there's many ways that we are supposed to act, 
right? Let love be genuine. Bear with one another. Rejoice with one another. He goes on, beloved, do not avenge yourselves, for vengeance is mine. I know sometimes that can be like an ethereal sounding statement. That's not meant to be just like, oh yeah, God will, ju- God will judge at a particular time. There is a time coming in which he will judge the world and he will have vengeance. We're not like just putting it off into the ether. What we're deferring to is the time that God will make things right. And that's why we bear with those who would wrong us. Because there will be a time in which the wrongdoing is going to be judged. Not because it's just going to fade away. And so we are to, in the meantime, overcome evil by doing good, not by afflicting more evil. Okay? In that, we are actually given a ministry of reconciliation. A ministry of reconciliation. Do you hear this? God gives it to us to be ambassadors Ambassadors actually represent and do things. We have a real ministry to reconcile. If there is going to be a time in which all wrongdoing will be brought before God, well, if we take care of the wrongdoing, then how is it going to come before God other than to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ? And if it comes before God as wrongdoing, well, then it's going to come in judgment and wrath. So if we go about reconciling with our neighbors... That has eternal efficacy. It matters on the day of judgment whether you reconcile with someone now or you wait until then. It matters. The ministry we have matters. There's several instances of this. Jesus talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount. If someone has something against you, the first thing is to consider, friends, do we have something? Does someone have something against us? Does someone have something against us? Have we wronged someone in some way? Or does someone just perceive that we've wronged them in some way? Jesus says, stop. <laughs> Go to them. Talk with them. Because there will be a day in which I'm going to hear them. Come to terms with your accuser now lest we have to deal with it on the day of judgment. Our ability to come now in humbleness before those who think that they have something against us and to love them and say, we're sorry. As Christ has forgiven me, so I know that I need to be forgiven. I am sorry for anything that I have done that has caused you harm. To seek that reconciliation. Now, if they deny you, they have something that they have to deal with before God. But if they listen to you, you've regained your brother. And we're participating actually in the work that God has for us. Or perhaps something's done someone, someone's done something to you. Right? And again, God gave us a process on how to do this. Right? You go to them, you bring others to them, you bring them before the church, and then you send them out of the church, if that's the way that it needs to be. But Notice what he says here also. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What he is saying is when the court, when the church sits in session, its judgment God honors. Its judgments are God's judgments. The terms that it sets 
are set in heaven. We have efficacy. So when we forgive one another, I think as he goes on, right? For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive yours. And if you don't forgive their trespasses, your heavenly Father will not forgive yours. And I know we could probably have a whole sermon on penal substitutionary atonement and the efficacy of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion, and that would be a very appropriate sermon. But that same Lord who was crucified for us said this to us. If you do not forgive those who have wronged you, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. But that also means if we forgive those, then the Father will forgive us. Based on what he said before, he'll also forgive them. And so we participate not in a cycle of sin, hurting and hurting one another. We participate in a cycle of forgiveness. (laughs) Forgiving one another and being forgiving, loving one another, redeeming one another, restoring one another, participating in the work that Christ has actually wrought. It matters. I find that amazing. You participate in the kingdom now and how you interact with one another, right? And that's what he means, that each one's works will become evident. This is how the kingdom is built up. This is how the temple is built. This is how his body is built up. When it says it's all things are built together and knit together in love, being built up into a body fit for the Lord, The mortar and the bricks are the instances of how we love one another and how we reconcile with one another. And it's meant to be beautiful. God would redeem every bit of suffering and sacrifice that goes into it to his praise and to yours. So he gives us the seriousness of the situation. Our ministry matters. How we interact with people matters. It builds up the kingdom. But he doesn't just set the stage as if it's like, oh my gosh, this is really hard, this is really serious, and then leaves us to it. The way that Jesus is calling us to live, he has made that way. He has made that way in himself, right? This is a harsh thing. You've heard that it is said, if anyone slaps you, let them slap you again. If they take your coat, give them another one. If you walk two miles, walk more miles. Right? That's a hard thing to say, right? So that you may be perfect. That's a heavy command, but did you hear this? When Jesus went to the cross and they crucified him under false pretenses, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. How did Jesus treat the ungodly? He died for them. Sinners, he died for them. Enemies, he died for them. And he reconciled them to God. Friends, he has walked this way of suffering affliction. In fact, the only way we have to God is because he has suffered that affliction. And he calls us into the same way. And I know it doesn't seem attractive, He has no form that we should admire him. Jesus was no John Wayne, okay? He was meek and lowly, and people spat on him. 
That is who we are called to follow. If anyone would follow me, right, he must take up his cross. But when we take up our cross after Jesus, we're not alone. He is with us. He has already made the way for us. He has given us not only an example, right? Because Christ has suffered, leaving us an example so that we too may follow in his steps. He committed no sin. He did not deceive. He did not revile. But he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He bore our sins on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So he gives us the example. But even more than that, he calls us into it. He walks with us. He knows our sufferings. He promised that there would be suffering. And he tells us to have the same mind, right? That is ours in Christ Jesus, as we read in the call to worship. That though he was in the form of God, he didn't count it equality something to be grasped, but he humbled himself. Laying down his life, becoming obedient to the point of death, and therefore God exalted him. Therefore God exalted him, and we are to look to him too. The way that he made, we are also running. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we're equipped with the seriousness of this situation. We're given an example, and more than that, we're given a companion in God who knows the sufferings and promises to redeem them all. But y'all, maybe we don't talk about this enough because we're really wary of works righteousness or earning our salvation, and those are appropriate things to be wary of. But the scriptures talk a lot about reward. It talks a lot about promise. And it talks about inheritance, right? For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame. Jesus won his seat. Y'all know that? It was fitting for God to make him perfect through suffering. Jesus humbled himself, and therefore God exalted him the name above every name. Right? He was in it to win it, as they say. Okay? Further on in this passage, from the next verse, verse 9, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, people who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, etc., 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 will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, the thing that he's saying is basically they're not going to inherit the kingdom. There's an inheritance. The flip side, Paul says to the Colossians, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. See, God has qualified you for it. He's put you on the team, but you got to run. There's work to be done. There's work, there's work of ministry of reconciliation to love one another and loving one another, bearing with one another is suffering. To let ourselves be defrauded. 
to talk bad about, to bear with wrongdoing against us while speaking the truth in love is suffering. That's why we're praying for strength and endurance and patience with joy. Because God promises to get it. A glorious inheritance. I mean, this blessed be God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being guarded by God's power for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last day. Right? That's awesome. Do you want it? Then suffer now so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to the praise and honor and glory of Jesus Christ at his revelation. Because it will be more precious than gold. More precious than gold. Right? This glorious part of Romans when Paul talks about becoming children and sons of the Father. What does he say? Heirs of God and heirs with Christ. Heirs with Christ to the eternal cosmic inheritance. Provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. God is not only preparing an eternal inheritance for his saints, he's preparing his saints for an eternal inheritance. And one of the main ways that we're being prepared, and one of the main ways that we're building up this inheritance, is by the way that we let, we love one another and we let ourselves suffer the wrong at this age, that we might see them purged away in the next. We speak the truth now and suffer for it, that we might see it vindicated in the next. We let ourselves be defrauded now that we might be rewarded at his coming. This is what he's promising us. Right? A new heavens and a new earth where he'll wipe away every tear. And to the one who conquers, they will have this heritage that he will be their God and they will be his people. Right? Anyone who gives up for this land, houses, money, fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, families, I mean, those are pretty extreme things, will, not receive, will receive a hundredfold when they inherit eternal life. Do we believe God's promise that he will give us even a hundredfold of anything that we would give up. That if I don't talk back to this person who just said something rude to me, that he won't give me a hundredfold for keeping my mouth shut. That someone who slaps me on the cheek, if I resist him, God won't give me a hundredfold. I mean, these are real promises that God makes to us. And so the final question that I have for us, friends, is, is it, is it worth it? Think about now whom you have a grudge against. Or who has a grudge against you that you don't want to go to because they should go to you first. And they're in the wrong anyway. It could have been yesterday it could be 20 years from now or 20 years back. Maybe someone's really hurt you. 
and you've never seen justice from them. Maybe someone thinks that you hurt them and you've never really been able to address it and you don't want to. Maybe you're afraid of going to someone because you think how they might react, they might retaliate. It might be awkward. Good heavens, if it'd be awkward. We're ashamed. I know I've been ashamed. I haven't wanted to go to someone because I'm ashamed to name what, name what happened. What shame, what fear, what stubbornness, what principle keeps you from moving toward your brother or your neighbor in love? Even if they might be in the wrong. And I ask, is it worth it for you to hold on to those things? God says it is not worth it. You will not be rewarded from holding on to them. They will be a hindrance to you. But he promises that it is worth it. It is worth it if you lay them down if you lay them down and follow after the way of Jesus, he will richly provide for you an inheritance into the kingdom. A hundredfold of whatever you're afraid or ashamed or too angry to give up. I know that it's hard. I don't want to do it either. (laughs) But he promises these things. I want to be like Paul. I want you to be like Paul. Whatever I have, whatever I'm holding on to, I'll count it as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus and the power of his resurrection and to press on for the prize that he has for us. And so we're to work it out now that we might be proud of one another, that we might be proud of one another on the day of Christ Jesus. And that all those who loved him would be rewarded at the day of his coming. So is it worth it? Is it worth laying down your life? Is it worth being defrauded? Is it worth suffering wrong after Christ to be rewarded by him? He counted you worth it. He counted you all worth it to come and suffer to make a way for you. So count him worth it to follow him. He is worthy of it. Amen. Lord, you are worthy. And so may we praise and sing you your worth and your greatness now as we close. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. come to my attention that I preached for a very long time. (laughs) That's okay. The Lord will repay you and redeem your time. But nonetheless, Lord, too, truly bless us. Whatever was profitable and fruitful, may it be a seed in good soil. And now send us out with your blessing. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. 
he will surely do it. Amen. Peace.